Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And I've been divorced since 2018, and together we have an amazing adult daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic. So I am really excited about the discussion that we're going to have today with my guest, Brooke Ward, who is actually a licensed marriage and family therapist. So Brooke, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you for that warm welcome and having me. It's an honor. Yeah, I'm so excited about the topics that we're going to address because I get a lot of emails, I get a lot of DMs on Instagram from folks that are struggling And your story is so important, but I'd love for you to kind of introduce yourself to the listeners and let them know kind of how you got to where you are and maybe a little bit about the work you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as you said, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I'm in New York Um, and how we kind of came about, my husband and I figuring out that we were in a neurodiverse marriage is kind of a long story, but I'll begin with my own um, diagnosis of ADHD um, last fall, um, which kind of began, um, it opened a whole new world um, for me. Even being a therapist, there was a lot of information that I just didn't know what ADHD looked like in women, um, besides the stereotype of maybe, you know, the eight-year-old boy running around the classroom, bouncing off the walls. um, There was no way that I thought I'd ever be diagnosed with this. Um, Mm -hmm. And I always joked with my husband, (laughs) like, oh my goodness, if I have ADHD, you have ADHD. I think (laughs) you need need an eval um, as well. And seeing how the meds helped me so much, I was really, really wanting him to get the support he needed. Um, And he was fairly... I don't love using the word resistant, but initially it was just like, no, no way. I don't think so. He's a teacher and he said, I work with this, you know, population all the time. So I, I, I don't have it. Um, and that it stopped there with the conversation between the two of us. Um, because during that time as well, we, we had a lot of fights and arguments and conflict. Um, mainly I think because we had a daughter who was six months old. I had also recently broken my ankle Um, So things were pretty tense um, and things didn't really get better. Um, We had the holidays and my daughter's first birthday coming up. And um, over time, we just kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And it just felt like to me, you know, this isn't the normal, you know, um, transition into parenthood. It felt like I work with a lot of, you know, mothers in perinatal mental health postpartum. I know that there's similarities. It just didn't make sense to me and I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, but with my own therapy, I was questioning a lot of the stuff that you and I will talk about behavior wise, um, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what to do with the marriage. But eventually, um, my husband was open to signing up and um, getting on the wait list for an ADHD assessment in March. Um, and in the meantime, I actually stumbled on this podcast. Um, and I believe it was um, an episode with your previous co-host, Greg Fuqua. Um, and it was on the misdiagnosis of autism, actually, um, that really opened my eyes to like, oh my goodness, I think 
this is what we're dealing with. And mm-hmm. over multiple episodes of binging <laughs> almost the whole, <laughs> the whole show, I was like, okay, this has to be it. Um, I was just certainly confused as well, being a therapist of like, why didn't this cross my mind? Um, it, because in that moment, you know, I, I felt like the only thing I could really land on was like, it must be this is narcissism, um, which <laughs> felt terrible for me to like think or say, but in my own therapy was like, okay, that I guess this is what it is. And I think we might have to head towards separation or divorce and it's going to probably be messy and ugly. And I didn't really want that, but I didn't tell my husband that I thought maybe it could be autism. I just really wanted this maybe evaluation to give some information um, to him and shed some light. Um, and then finally went through the whole process. And by the end of May, so we're really early into this journey ourselves, um, mm-hmm. did get the formal diagnosis of autism, ADHD, and also sensory processing disorder. So that's that's our journey. And you know what, Brooke, when you first reached out to me, I was like, your story is the story of thousands and thousands of people all over the world and not just women who are in neurodiverse relationships, but men and non-binary folks. Mm-hmm. And the story that you are sharing is going to be a light bulb moment for those folks that see themselves in your relationship because one of the things that I hear over and over again and especially from the autistic partners who attend the neurodiverse couples support groups that I facilitate is that many of them received a narcissistic um, uh, personality disorder uh, assessment or they had an assessment and they received that diagnosis but it just didn't fit. It just, you know, it didn't fit. And so I think this is going to be a paradigm shift that is going to happen hopefully all over the world, that those folks that have had that diagnosis, that maybe that they look at whether or not they might be autistic and not narcissistic. And it's just, I I can see the paradigm shift happening for many, many years to come. So let's talk. First of all, thank you so much for sharing your story. I, I think there are a few things that I want to um, kind of pull out before we get into our actual discussion. One is, Brooke, you said you were thinking about divorce. And I hear that over and over again when folks do not understand what is going on. And the fact that you had a young child was possibly triggering some things that your your husband wasn't aware um, were related to the autism and the ADHD and the sensory processing uh, disorder. So do you want to talk a little bit about maybe what was happening that made you think that your husband might be narcissistic? What, what, what was the m- misunderstandings that were happening repeatedly? Because I think that's what's happening with a lot of folks. It's just a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot of, I guess, little and big things. And I think starting with going back to the ADHD diagnosis, once I was on the right medication, um, and I think resonates maybe with a lot of your stories I've heard with postpartum being really, really hard for you and, you know, talking 
meds and everything. Uh, it just felt like I was in a fog and I, I didn't know what to do. Um, I, I internalized a lot of things. So I'm, uh, I call myself a highly sensitive person on that emotional spectrum. Um, so I often would blame myself and just felt so dysregulated. I literally couldn't see reality, I guess, at times being grounded in, in a clear headspace, even before my daughter, I will say, looking back, I'm like, wow. Um, but I think at that moment, getting on the right medication and learning how to manage my symptoms, clearly, I really started to see things, um, how, um, I guess, maybe at times unbalanced or even codependent, we really were in, in the household and marriage, even before my daughter. Um, I think my daughter just added that extra le level of stress that naturally as a mom, I had to take on a lot of um, a lot more roles um, mm -hmm. on top of trying to breastfeed and, you know, being more of that main parent um, due to my husband's work schedules. Um, I could, I started to see and get really resentful and angry that a lot of the household tasks, the emotional mental load fell on me. Like a lot of women we hear in, especially in our American culture, um, it, it, it fell on me, but I also just felt so um, alone and frustrated and felt at times, I've said this to my husband multiple times, used and um, taken advantage of. And his own response to that at times was kind of confusing for me. And he would say, you know, I get it. I, I will do better. I will change. But I believe he's very just structured and routine and a creature of habit. It was really hard for him to adjust caring for not only an infant, um, but sleep deprivation. And I just assumed where I know part of this for me, you know, he would maybe step up and take over some things that he saw that I was doing. Um, but it, part of it was the lack of communication between us, but mm -hmm. also communication became really, really hard, I think, because I was always angry and emotional that I'm realizing now would really trigger him. And he would often get very defensive. Um, he would, you know, lash out in different ways. And I don't like using the word lash out, but would be very defensive and make sometimes very blunt or hurtful, what I perceived as hurtful remarks um, to essentially stop from me nagging, talking. Um, yeah. He would, yeah. Kind I of, can relate. I can relate. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yep. He would definitely um, look towards, you know, like leaving the room or even going out into the garage where his interest is cars, where he'd want to spend time working on his car, cleaning his car, researching things, um, going for a drive where that definitely soothed him. Mm -hmm. um, and I perceive that as complete abandonment because there was no hey, I'm just going to go take five minutes. I'll be right back in from a more quote-unquote healthy communication perspective. It just felt confusing where he would come back in at times and it was almost like our like mini fight or blow up didn't happen. Um, and I would just be so confused and, and talk about it in therapy. And it would, you know, my therapist would also be kind of questioning what is going on and there would be labels of you know gaslighting stonewalling um shame and deflection all of these really harsh negative words um and i know in my own therapist brain were big red flags and i just didn't know no matter how much i tried to cope and regulate and really use like i feel statements or 
try to get him to sit down and have a conversation, the more he avoided um, and mm. the more pain that that really evolved because he really just, it was a lot for him to right. emotionally connect. And also, you know, we have sensory wise, a screaming infant in the background right. or right. a smelly diaper or lotion or a lot of these sensory needs that I wasn't aware of that would also create um, a lot of emotional dysfunction and dysregulation yeah. for him on top of just trying to talk about, you know, <laughs> who's going to do the laundry. Right. So it was a perfect storm on yes. multiple levels. So let's, let's unpeel a few of these things, yeah. because again, I think that a lot of folks are going to be able to relate to this, both partners, and mm -hmm. it's going to make so much sense. So first of all, you said that your husband was very structured and routinized mm -hmm. in his day, mm -hmm. in his life. And I, I think that that is a really, really important thing for the holistic or neurotypical partners to hear, because any major change in your autistic partner's life is I remember my ex saying this to me before we, we, we knew we were a neurodiverse couple, but we had separated and he had had to move out of our house. I, mm -hmm. I said I would move because I knew it was going to be difficult for him, <laughs> but he wanted me to stay in the house. So he moved and he said to me, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, um, I now realize that any change is like a massive car accident for me. Mm -hmm. And when he said that to me, I was like, what? What are you talking about? That's like drama city. <laughs> now I get it. And, you know, wherever he's living now, he probably will never move from there because change of that magnitude is so difficult for him. Okay. And so... For the neurotypical or, and I'm going to say neurotypical and holistic, because you and I, you have an ADHD diagnosis, ADHD diagnosis. I don't have the diagnosis, but I self-identify. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that understanding the magnitude of the emotional dysregulation when change to a routine or structured life occurs for our autistic partners it can feel like a major car accident. So that was going on in your marriage because you had a young child, right? Yes. So the yeah. major change. And so his reaction to the major change, and it was a reaction, not necessarily a response. His reaction was anger. Your reaction was anger. He got defensive. He got blunt. And it never really got to a place where you were communicating with respect and love and kindness and compassion because you didn't know you were a neurodiverse couple. You understood you had ADHD, but you didn't understand that you both were different neurotypes, right? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Um, okay. Yeah. Did you want to say something else about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, where, you know, I'm looking back, realizing um you know, I definitely did not realize how structured and routine he was or needed. Um, because with our ADHD, for both of us, we're <laughs> really not always the most organized and structured per se, but, you know, things such as, um, you know, even taking a sick day off from work was a challenge between the two of us because our daughter had a lot of chronic health um, illness 
issues this winter um, with daycare. So she was continually sick at least two to three times a week. And it, it really just felt like a tug of war at times of saying who is going to, you know, take off tomorrow. And I just, and again, assumed since I recently opened my own private practice, um, I was, you know, very anxious and worried, you know, I don't have sick days, um, pushing out clients that need to see me weekly can be really difficult and challenging to fit everyone in, um, in two days or reschedule them appropriately, or, you know, worried about finances. Um, but for him, even just taking a sick day was very hard of like, no, I have, I have to be at work. I am providing for my family. So I need to go in, even though he had a lot of sick days and more security, um, within his job or, um, other things such as like getting up in the morning at a certain amount of time, um, was really hard in the way of like, he just assumed, you know, this has worked our whole marriage really. Um, but adding in our daughter and needing to get her to daycare, um, it added a lot of frustration. And I, I would lash out in the morning of like, why can't you just get up a half hour earlier and take the shower? So it doesn't impact my day. And I know approaching him in this (laughs) emotional state uh, did not help it. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and so the both of you were dysregulated you yep. weren't you weren't hearing each other's needs you nope. weren't working as a team to get what needed to be done for your daughter and i think you know again i hear this often 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 i will tell you my my experience with my ex-husband when we had our daughter was a little bit different because i had such bad postpartum depression and i was working on my phd at the time so my and i was teaching and i was doing research i had a full schedule um but what i realize now looking back is my ex-husband was literally the best father of a young baby and a young child because he routinized everything (laughs) and she you know kids little babies love that they love Mm -hmm. the routine they embrace it so it's a perfect 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 time for him to be a father and I needed him to step in and do that so Mm -hmm. you know I think for the couples out there who are struggling who have young children or even children in general finding out how you can create that structure and that routine so that both of you can have different roles, but important mm-hmm. roles as your child grows, because it shouldn't be, ev- everything should not be on one person's shoulders, mm-hmm. whether it's the father or the mother, or if you're in a same sex relationship, you know, it shouldn't just be one partner. Mm-hmm. I think both partners as just Mona's opinion need to have mm-hmm. a role in, you know, raising their child and caretaking. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to talk about related to your child and how, you know, that may have changed your communication and the structure mm-hmm. and the routine? Yeah. Um, and I will also add in there, like my husband is an absolutely wonderful father to our daughter as well. And, um, you know, I do want to preface, I am highlighting a lot of negatives here. And, um, and of course, putting a disclaimer out there that, um, you know, talking about narcissism and some of this stuff can be really triggering and probably should have started with that disclaimer. But, um, you know, I want to just like, yeah, really emphasize my husband is absolutely uh, a wonderful father and husband and has really worked to change. And both of us 
find that routine and structure now um, with more awareness and compassion. And um, you said earlier, your, your husband, your ex said, it, you know, felt like a car crash, car accident would for change. And I heard um, this line or metaphor um, in the AANE um, certification process and training right now that I am going through um, to help hopefully other couples in my practice that may be facing some similar challenges, um, that it is like um, for a neurotypical person or holistic person brain, um, change is kind of like Play-Doh. It is fairly obviously flexible and we can mold it and shape it um, in our brains when we try to learn a new skill. But for neurodivergent, mostly autistic brains, it is like trying to scratch in titanium to make a change and you're going to have to really carve at it over and over and over and over again and to really make a dent but once that line is carved into the titanium it's there forever Mm -hmm. so over time once we make these changes and are trying to you know really be patient and regulate and help each other with you know even minuscule changes um it it does get ingrained as like now obviously a new form of routine and structure Mm-hmm. I think that's great. And the more I read about the brain and understand about neuroplasticity, the more I've worked on changing the way in which I think about things, the way in which I do things so that my my ADHD traits do not take over or my <laughs> emotional dysregulation does not take over because I've said it on the podcast, I don't know how many times, but I was a screamer and I know that I dysregulated my ex-husband over and over and over again. I mean, there were probably times that I was emotionally abusive during our marriage and didn't realize it. I own it. I've apologized to him in person, by text, by email, you know, and, um, you know, his, his, main way of dealing with conflict was always to shut down. It was very, very infrequently that he would respond to me by yelling. If anything, he would, he would try to change the subject and start making me laugh or talk about Mm -hmm. something else. He was, he was good at avoiding conflict, which wasn't good in our relationship and isn't good really in any relationship. (laughs) But I would love to talk about what this looked like in your marriage, because I say repeatedly, when we are emotionally dysregulated, either partner, having conversations is not going to work. We need to take a pause. We need to find, you know, a way to get regulated again, whether it's self-soothing or co-regulating, whatever it is. Um, So let's talk a little bit about some of the dysregulated, emotionally dysregulated states Mm -hmm. you saw, you know, before you knew that your husband was ASD, autistic, ADHD, and had sensory processing disorder. Mm -hmm. What were some of the things that were happening? Yeah, um, well, I think... Similar to what you just said with my ADHD brain, I was very impulsive and also needed instant gratification. So if we had any type of disconnect, um, misunderstanding, I would instantly keep seeking, you know, an answer or resolution for him right in that moment. Um, But that would definitely push him to points of what I would just call like 
anger, meltdown, shutdown. Um, oftentimes it would be either this place of, you know, he was sitting on the couch watching TV on his phone, completely silent. And I think um, I perceived that as he just was, you know, purposely ignoring me, um, you know, being a jerk and he's watching his favorite TV show or videos. Um, you know, I would, in my head would be how insensitive. And once, you know, the term narcissism was coming into my head, um, personally through my own research and, you know, topics in my own therapy, that's kind of the lens I started to see things and become hypervigilant and, you know, would continue to, you know, be dysregulated in my own state. And other points in time, it would be the opposite of when I mentioned angry, you know, we would get to the point of yelling, um, you know, he might need to go outside and yell, um, just let out some steam in some particular way. Um, and also the fact of the sensory issues at hand, his own challenges um, were probably 10 times harder for him to regulate. And um, one example um, to use from my lived experience was um, this was when I was on the couch with my broken ankle. I really could do nothing and help take care of our five-month-old daughter. It was a lot on his plate. And I don't remember exactly what caused, you know, any type of big blow up, but it was more of the, we were going back and forth at each other. I was probably trying to micromanage from the couch um, while he was just trying to do his best. And I ordered um, a grocery delivery and um, he was bringing in the groceries from outside. And I ordered a package of um, water bottles. And now that we were aware and I've asked him about this, um, he would always say he hated like the water bottles or like touching them and the noise and the squeakiness it makes. But to me back then, it didn't, I don't know, it didn't bother me. So why would it really bother him? I could kind of roll my eyes at um, unfairly. But at one point, you know, as I'm, you know, trying to talk to him from the couch, our daughter's crying. He was carrying in these water bottles and at one point got really dysregulated that the pantry door came off where I believe he tugged on it too hard or tried to shut it. It went off the hinges. And for me on the couch, I was confused and worried and scared and upset. Um, I didn't even know what just happened. Um, mm. And I know he came into the living room. He didn't really say anything about the door that just came off, but we continued to talk about what we were upset with, but I was very upfront with him of like, you will not do that again. That was awful. That scared me. And like having a child in the home, that can't happen. Um, but his response to me was very, you know, honest and looked at me and he just was like, you're right. I am very sorry. That won't happen again. And that was the end of the discussion. But for me, I was still internally confused of like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. is this escalating? There's this abuse cycle that my therapist is talking about. Um, what do I think of this? Um, why is he ignoring talking about it? But I think for him now looking at it with the ASD lens, it was just a mini blow up, a blip. Um, he was burnt out from work. Um, he was working a really tough job that required a lot of socializing and, you know, wasn't the best fit for him. Um, on top of now doing 100% of the household duties. Um, the, yeah, and just, the water bottle. He thought, yeah, the, the sweetness the of the water bottle, yeah. like set him off and was just like, that was it. And I didn't want to touch the plastic and I couldn't handle it. Yeah. 
And now looking back, thank you so much for sharing that because there's so many things woven into that, that as, you know, either couples are listening to this or um, one or one of the partners is listening to this. They're like, oh my gosh, we have had this same exact scenario occur in our family. And I can tell you this didn't really happen in my marriage because I do believe that my ex has been masked and, you know, we've never had this discussion, but I do believe he masked throughout our marriage. And um, when we separated, he, I believe the mask came off and it came Mm -hmm. off because for the first time in his life, he was able to live on his own. He had never lived on his own. Not that he couldn't have before because, you know, he could have afforded it, but it just Mm -hmm. never happened. He moved from his parents' house to living with me. And then we got married a, a year after we lived together. So for the first time in his 50s, he was living on his own. And so he could stand up to me. And and one of the things, and, and, and sometimes it was not in the nicest of ways. He said some really, really nasty things to me, which he had never said during our marriage. And so I think one of the important things for partners to hear, both partners, is that when you find out that you're a neurodiverse couple, whether one partner is autistic, the other is ADHD or some other combination, there's going to be an unmasking process. Mm -hmm. And so as the unmasking occurs, you're going to both look at situations that occurred in your relationship and in your lives that didn't maybe make sense at the time or seemed over the top, like the pantry door coming off. But it, Mm -hmm. you know, better that the pantry door came off than something was thrown, you know, at you Mm -hmm. or, you know, a window was broken, which Mm -hmm. I've heard those things happening too, right? Mm -hmm. So understanding all of that happened because of that perfect storm, the sensory Mm -hmm. processing disorder and the autism and the ADHD, Mm -hmm. what, can you maybe share a little bit about what? you both have learned that you do differently now so that there isn't this perfect storm. Yeah. Well, um, right now things I am really fortunate. Um, once my husband got the diagnosis and has really accepted it and is, has the motivation and, um, capacity and ability to make changes and see things from a different lens. Um, and, and unmask and also make things easier for him. Um, Cause that's, it's really hard, I think in our more neurotypical world, um, but he's made big changes such as, um, as hard as it is on the topic of change, he totally changed his career path, acknowledging, um, you know, he worked in very social settings of actually being a bartender and um, as a side job for, 10 plus years and also then teaching. Um, He took the brave step to um, combine his passion and interest for cars um, and try to make a career out of it. And fortunately was given an opportunity to find a higher up management job in a local dealership um, Mm. here. So that really minimized a lot, I think, of recently the burnout symptoms I think he was called he was feeling from masking and really trying to you know keep up and understand the social nuances um and has been really honest about sometimes he has missed social cues or misunderstandings um that really led to you know he'd come home and his 
at that point in time, he his unmasking was sitting on the couch and just, you know, being upset, anxious, um, wasn't very present um, and didn't want to be. Um, but other little modifications and accommodations we've done are those like little loop um, headphones, plug-in mm-hmm. um, earbuds yeah. to help yeah. minimize um, the noise since I think um you know, all of our own neurodivergency. And I never want to diagnose my, you know, one-year-old now, but definitely <laughs> has some, I think, ADHD tendencies. And we both laugh because there's always something going on, a thousand different toys playing. We need to have nursery rhymes in the background. Um, you know, she's always yelling, laughing, jumping, um, you know, on top of like the alarms going off, phones going off, oven, <laughs> um, lawnmower outside, cats fighting. So that helps him to like bring down the noise in the car or if he's at home with her um, and I'm working late, um, it just helps him to regulate uh, and just know being aware of things like um, tactile sensory stuff, like wearing, you know, clothing that's comfortable for him. Um, and other food and um, smells, um, just being aware of like you know, what that could like happen if he's over, um, overly anxious, overwhelmed, um, just more like apt to, um, you know, become easier dysregulated and also like verbalize that to me of like if we are in a social setting or things are too loud or too bright, you know, we know maybe we should avoid going to, we have a museum here called the Museum of Play, where there's all um, toys and games and sights and sounds and kids running around that maybe we should just go to the zoo and that's much more of a less sensory area for all three of us. Um, So we just know that. And also um, one last example on this topic that now it's given me a different lens and some compassion for him and ability for us to repair after a conflict where in the past, I just would have uh, been completely heartbroken and frustrated and gone to therapy and been validated that this was narcissistic traits and I need to leave and probably, you know, should think of contacting a divorce attorney or even going to, um, you know, the local domestic violence shelter, which was um, pretty uh, awful to think about and be through. But um, one example a couple months ago was um, we got up in the middle of the night. My daughter started crying, and um, my husband was the first one to walk into her nursery um, and open the door. And immediately, I smelled something awful. Um, mm. I believe she gotten sick, and for me, it was oh goodness! I was like instantly had to cover my nose. Um, and from what I'm understanding in the reading, and my husband's explanation of it his sensory um interception and awareness and like the intensity is like anywhere between 10 to 50 times more intense than the neurotypical brain mm-hmm. um so we walked in there and he you know we both said it smelled awful but she had gotten sick and it was all over her crib and her and then all over me so we had a kind of tag team and say like okay i need you to the new bed sheets and towels and stuff from the downstairs in the laundry area and start a bath and I'll just kind of stand here and hold her but he instantly got very it just seemed agitated and upset and you know being really short of like I know I know I know or you know huffing and puffing and to me I just was so frustrated of like please don't 
do any of that. Like, this is really hard. I want us to be a team. But he went off and he did get all the stuff and started the bath and he did clean up while I was giving her a bath. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole process probably took us probably about 40 minutes from start to finish. Um, and by the time yeah, I was able to like put her down and into bed and he still was just very upset. And I believe he said some hurtful things. Um, that by that time I went to bed and it was 2am and I just was so devastated. I was like, I don't even want to like go there or talk about it. I know he's and he had to get up and he didn't, we don't want to lose sleep. And, you know, the sensory issue with the smell was probably really hard for him. So I was like, I'm just going to go to bed. Maybe we'll talk about it in the morning. Um, but I got up and still was really hurt from the whole experience and what he had said. But when he came downstairs, it was like nothing had happened. And mm-hmm. I initially was like confused, but I work through my own um, awareness and my coping skills sometimes is just bite your tongue, deep breaths, like you like figure right. it out, journal about it, go to the right. gym and blow off steam. But finally he, yeah, approached me and could say like, something's off. Why, what's going on? Um, and I broke down in tears and was like, Did, what happened last night? You said some really horrible things and I'm really hurt. And he just like, stared at me completely blank and was like what do you mean and I just asked him like were you sleepwalking like what was that um but after a few minutes I was able to pull up the video camera because my daughter has you know a video camera monitor that records and we were able to just kind of sit there and say like yeah this is what happened during Mm -hmm. this time and he was able to finally say yeah like wow like well, the only thing I remember last night was walking in, opening the door. And then the last thing I remember was you handing me her out from the bathroom. And I went, I put her down in the crib and sat there for a few minutes, but then came back to bed. And it, to him, it was two or three minutes worth of wow. time. For me, it was 40, 45 minutes and I had full memory of it. So we both think and hypothesize that the sensory overwhelm, the getting up in the middle of the night when it's really hard for him to do that, um, just led to this outburst and meltdown that looked like him being like really upset and rude. Um, and he blacked out. He, he literally yeah. did not have a memory of, you know, 40 some odd minutes of it. And Brooke, first of all, you know, my heart goes out to both of you. It just, you know, when you have a child, you don't know when they're going to get sick. You don't know when there's going to be emergencies. You want your partner to be able to be there for you. And that, you know, and then they're yelling at you and they don't even remember it. And, I, you know, I want the listeners to understand that this shit happens. And I'm going to use that mm-hmm. word because it is shit. And then you've got to take time to repair because that was a conflict Mm -hmm. of a major proportion of major proportions and Mm -hmm. if you don't if you're not able to repair together that's where a neurodiverse affirming and aware Mm -hmm. couples counselor is critical or coach because these things can keep building and mm-hmm. to some folks, it may feel like emotional abuse or it mm-hmm. might feel like gaslighting or whatever, you know, term you want to use or even narcissism. But it's not. Mm-hmm. It, 
when you when you kind of unpack it, it's the sensory issues, the overwhelm with the emotional issues, the fact that, you know, his routine was changed probably for the rest of the night, um, mm-hmm. that he was woken out of sound sleep. I mean, there's just so many things. And again, you're never going to have control of all, all of those things. So finding out how you can handle those emergencies, because mm-hmm. one person is probably more uh, effective in emergencies. And I hear from a lot of autistic folks <laughs> that they can handle the emergency <laughs> situation really mm-hmm. well, but then mm-hmm. it's the the emotions afterwards, they're not mm-hmm. so good at. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so thank you for kind of taking us through that. Is there anything that you learned from, you know, the meltdown, the dysregulation and the blackout that he didn't remember so much of it that has helped you in, you know, a future crisis or a future mm-hmm. challenging situation where you were able to repair better or differently? Yeah, unfortunately, um, in that incident, we, we've been able to repair pr- pretty quickly and actually you know I'm very fortunate and so grateful like he was the one to really sit and talk with me you know before he would go to work and he usually has very voice he hates doing that he doesn't want to be dysregulated going to work so I'm grateful in that instance um but we processed you know um I really think he is so wonderful in emergencies um and unfortunately we've encountered a few but we've talked about it we're a good tag team I think and he can I think you've shared before too like your ex like in emergencies he is from point a to point b there really isn't this emotional dysregulation crisis yeah feel um he he can you know get things done um I am can also shift into that mode but afterwards yeah we know that I need space to emotionally regulate and cope and maybe that's me going to therapy or calling a friend or I just need an extra half hour in the morning to go for a walk or do something to help take care of me in that way versus me expecting him to um, show up for me emotionally um, if he just can't connect that way. And that's, I'm learning to really accept that, that that's okay. And shifting my expectation um, has really helped me to not hold on anger and hurt as much and then, you know, jump to further labels of him you know, being neglectful and emotionally abusive and all of these things that sometimes we can easily see in a Google search or might come up in therapy since narcissism and all of that is such a popular buzzword nowadays. Yeah. And, and I will tell you, I mean, and I've said it on the podcast before, um, one of the main reasons that I'm divorced today is because of my ex's reaction to me when I was in the emergency room and thought I was having a heart attack. And he basically screamed at me, he had a meltdown mm-hmm. and said, I'm divorcing you next week. And oh. he, he apologized. He sent me a text. I don't remember if it was that night or the next morning. And he apologized profusely. And it was the, you know, the emotional dysregulation, seeing me in the hospital. Maybe I had woken him up out of sound sleep because it was like 2.30 mm-hmm. in the morning. He had to go to work at the time he was mm-hmm. working two jobs. He was working seven days a week. So it was a perfect mm-hmm. storm. But instead of looking at it at the time through um, a neurodiverse lens, I was like, no, I, I can't do this mm-hmm. anymore. So I want to share mm-hmm. with the listeners, you know, I think that we all have our breaking points, whether you are the autistic or you're neurotypical or you're allistic, 
you have your breaking point, you have your non-negotiables, you know what feels like abuse, whether it's emotion or, mm-hmm. or emotional or physical. Abuse is not okay. And and I've mm-hmm. said during this conversation that I know I was emotionally abusive to my ex because mm-hmm. I just wasn't getting through. But abuse is never, never okay. There are, and you know, I can put this, I've done this before, put the uh, phone number for the domestic violence or intimate partner violence hotline in the show notes. But when you understand and you're just in the beginning stages of understanding that you're a neurodiverse couple and you look back at your life through that lens, there may have, there may have been abuse and it's because of Mm -hmm. the emotional dysregulation and the sensory overload and a lot of other things, but it doesn't make it okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I feel like I need to say that. I don't know if you want to share anything else. We need to understand how to communicate with each other. We need to understand how to self-soothe or become co-regulate or co-regulate together. We need to understand what our triggers are. And we need to be able to go for help if we need help from an outside person, whether it's a therapist or a coach. Um, and possibly medication, you know, because you talked about um, that, too. I know I went on an antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication during my separation. And, oh, my gosh, it was a lifesaver. I did that for four and a half years. I wish I had done it during my postpartum depression. But I fought it. I fought it because I'm a social worker. I should be able to work through this shit, right? So do you have anything else you want to say about that? Because I'm sure, again, lots of... Um, folks are resonating probably with your story and how much you're sharing. So is there anything else you want to talk about related to the um, abuse piece or what might mm-hmm. seem like abuse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will definitely add to your disclaimer of absolutely um, abuse is abuse, no matter what the neurotype is. Um, and I know that, you know, recently you had a podcast episode that talked about really our neurology is really 10 to 15% of the dynamics, but it's huge um, if we miss it. And I want to put it out there um, that, yeah, seeking support is always needed in these moments, but it's looking at what's the right support. Um, And sometimes if people aren't trained to even just question um, a couple questions about neurology, um, I think it would have saved myself and my husband a lot of hurt and prolonged trauma um, in this piece, um, because similarly as... um, you shared when you were in the hospital, your ex's response felt just not appropriate to the situation. And I think the incident that really kind of sparked a snowball effect in my therapy was um, I I broke my ankle and my husband's first reaction to it um, that really upset me was he was like, I'm screwed. It wasn't, um, oh my gosh, my wife just broke her ankle, part her. Um, he, he just said that very bluntly and I got very upset and angry and just felt neglected and abandoned. And I, you know, I told him that night when I was like, I was actually at the hospital since the ambulance took me and he was on his way, but I just know I was texting him. I'm like, do not come, please do not come. I'm better off being here alone. Um, I just knew at that moment he could not emotionally support me or help me to regulate, Um, But looking back, um, you know, talking about it in therapy, and I'll put another disclaimer out there, I've like loved my therapist. And actually, this has been a big growing moment um, 
and I actually had two of them at that point in time, um, mm-hmm. a, a trauma therapist and a postpartum therapist, but neither of them picked up on, okay, maybe it's sensory issues. Like, okay, if it's autism, ADHD, yeah, he's going to have to take 110% of the load with this baby, with trying to figure out daycare, all of those things. Um, my finances could take a big hit, um, all of these things. And he was so overwhelmed that, you know, looking at it with a neurodivergent lens, yeah, um, that was valid for him. So that, but that sparked for both of them questioning, well, is it narcissism? Is Mm -hmm. he not into you? You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of questions valid, um, but it, it did just leave this like thought in the back of my head that grew and grew and grew. And a lot of his actions, unfortunately, from last August up until about March, I was so picking apart some of the things like, yep, he's being abusive. Yep, that's awful. Yeah, he's being neglectful. Um, and going back to therapy each week and talking about it just created this vicious cycle um, as well. Yeah. And, and Brooke, again, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, that's very vulnerable because I, and this is probably something that will be my soapbox for the rest of my life. And I have some colleagues that I'm working with on this. I have yet to find a program, whether it's for, um, you know, marriage and family therapists, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, whatever, where they have a full class, a full course mm-hmm. on neurodiversity in adults. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we see the numbers increasing every year that the CDC is putting out regarding the number of autistic children, every single one of those, you know, one in 36, I think it was this year, autistic mm-hmm. children have an autistic parent. I would almost mm-hmm. bet, you know, big money on that. <laughs> Um, and so we're talking about all these adults who are part of the lost generation, they are undiagnosed, and they may never, ever self-identify or be diagnosed. And the havoc that is going on in the intimate relationships and the family relationships and work relationships, because the autistic person doesn't understand their neurology, it's not about they're wrong. And I want the listeners to know that because I have a lot of listeners who are autistic. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that we live in a society that doesn't understand neurology and and the impact Mm -hmm. it plays in every single one of our relationships. And it starts with us. Because I will tell you, if I knew about my neurology when I was growing up, I probably wouldn't have a six-page resume, <laughs> Brooke. I, you know, when I got bored, I was moving on to the next job, you know. Um, you know, I wouldn't have moved us across country. I don't know how many times we, w- we moved. I want to say six, you know. I'm bored. Let's move. Let's do something else. So understanding how our brain operates and understanding how our partner's brain operates and our children's and our friends and all co-workers can be the difference between a life filled with conflict and dysregulation and a life filled with hopefully peace and joy. So we've talked about 
so many issues that are critically important for the world to start discussing and to be part of the paradigm shift that I know this podcast is a part of and my colleagues who do podcasts on this topic, but there's just so much of a need for more understanding. So I'd love if you could maybe share a little bit about why you think some of the current teachings and the traditional kind of systems that we have in place are failing us. And, you know, people, I I said at the beginning of the podcast, people are being misdiagnosed left and right. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what do you think is happening? And you're much younger than me, Brooke. I mean, I'm I'm going to (laughs) be 60. So you went to school way after me. What do you think is happening? Well, um, I think even to this day, um, there's just such a lack of awareness and a lot of stigmas and stereotypes with autism and and also ADHD and the neurodivergent categories. Um, One, we're not trained in, at least, you know, in the school I went to, and I think all of the others, um, I am just making a broad assumption, but, you know, in other professions too, like education and medical fields, um, we, you know, we skim over these, at least in my experience, Um, we're not taught to assess for neurology, but in my diagnostic class, um, less than 10 years ago, um, you know, we went through a lot of things like depression, these are the symptoms, this is what it looks like, and really got into the nitty gritty of what's, you know, major depression versus, um, you know, anxiety and adjustment disorder, and, you know, spent a long time on those diagnoses and and personality disorders. But autism and ADHD really was maybe a three-minute thing of, okay, ADHD, essentially, you know, really only worry about it if you're working maybe in a school setting or pediatric population. Um, Usually, you know, it will get caught by an early age. Their pediatrician will, you know, assess for it. Don't worry about it. They'll be on medication. Usually is a young boy. Um, And that's really it. And I kind of checked out there because I had a passion for working in the women's health perinatal eating disorder field, which I still really love working with. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a lot of missed neurodivergency there. um, But there is I, and I just was like, okay, that's ADHD and never even saw it in myself. Um, And similar with autism, um, you know, the stigma and stereotype of maybe in, uh, again, in the elementary pediatric population will be caught very early on. Um, They will have a diagnosis probably in some form of special education if needed, occupational therapy. Um, And if it's in adulthood, there's the shame and stigma and stereotype of, well, they'll get through school and maybe, you know, they're going to need a lot of accommodations and different needs in life. I think there's the shame and stigma and stereotype. If you have that diagnosis, you will get through. some form of school, possibly, um, and essentially either go on to the workforce or might need a higher level of needs um, in some form of intellectual or developmental disability settings, group homes, um, and accommodations like that, but nothing for relationships, nothing yeah. for misdiagnosis or undiagnosed. What's that mean or why maybe neurotypical therapies 
um, there's no training in alexithymia. I'm just going to sen- say they suck, Brooke. Yes. I, I'm yeah. gonna, I, I am going to use that very official Thank you. Term. They suck <laughs> because my ex and I spent thousands of dollars, went to three different therapists during our separation, and they all were great couples therapists. If we were a neurotypical couple, we would have gotten <laughs> through a lot of stuff. <laughs> but it was a waste of money. We actually got into more conflict after every session. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. So, so what you're saying is so true. And I think the three words that you're using around um, neurodiversity, stigma, shame, and stereotypes, it's got to stop. And mm-hmm. I know, I know that I'm doing a little, little a bit with, you know, the podcast and the support groups, but, I, I wish in, or I hope in my lifetime, hopefully in, in my daughter's lifetime, the shift will become even bigger, that folks will understand that we all have differently wired brains, all of us do, and understanding our neurology is critical to us being successful in life and in relationships, whatever type of relationships they are. And I do believe, and I I will believe this until I leave this earth, I do believe that neurodiverse relationships can be some of the most amazing relationships when you understand yourself you understand your partner, and that's on many levels, your communication needs, your emotional needs, your sensory needs, um, your physical and sexual intimacy needs, all of that stuff. When you understand what you each need and what you want, and you're able to accept that the differences that are neurological are probably not going to change, and you work on the things that you can change individually and as a couple, then you can be a very powerful couple. Because I think about when my ex and I were at our best, probably was when our daughter was small, because he was able to create that structure and that routine. It worked really well for her. She was a great child. I mean, she had colic for, I don't know, six, seven months. He handled that beautifully. He used to take her in the car and drive her around until she fell asleep. He was really good. That routine every night at seven o'clock, she'd start crying and he would take her in the car. And it was, I'd say her first five, maybe to seven years, we were a great tag team because I handled the emotion. I handled all the play dates. I handled the birthday parties. I handled the field trips at school. And he handled making sure that there was a routine every day in her life. So she had the best of both of our brains, but we didn't know we were a neurodiverse couple. So when things started moving forward, you know, and she started getting older and she had her own opinion and she wanted to do things that, you know, weren't routinized or weren't part of my ex's schedule. Um, he ste- he started stepping back a lot more and I was fine with that. But, um, you know, it, it definitely can affect your relationship when you feel you're taking on more of the roles that you wanted to share because maybe they were mm-hmm. shared. at at an earlier time when things were a little bit easier. So I I couldn't agree with you more that we have to not only educate 
every single system out there, you added the education and the healthcare system, you know, every system law enforcement. I mean, there's so many different um, people that need to be educated about neurology. And we, we have to, we have to understand that we're all different and we have to figure out how we can understand and appreciate and accept each other's differences. So I have, uh, do you have anything else you want to share about that? Um, before we go on to the last subject I want to talk about? No, I just was laughing too. Like I, my degree is literally a licensed marriage and family therapist. And for so long I avoided couples work and didn't know why. And I think maybe it's my own neurology, but I was like, these tools just don't work. Uh, maybe for some, but <laughs> yeah, like, oh my goodness. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, for those that are listening, the neurodiverse couples support groups that I facilitate, it's all about understanding each other's differences. And I think that the light bulbs that go off for a lot of the partners, both partners, they're like, you know, you can read a book, you can watch a podcast or listen to a podcast or watch a video. But when you see that there are other couples that are on Zoom that literally are telling your story and have just met you, it is, it can be life-changing and doesn't mean that you come to the support group or you go to counseling together and your relationship is going to, you know, change overnight, or you're going to heal all the unintentional pain and hurt you caused each other. No, but you can begin to learn new ways of communicating and understanding, you know, what, makes you each dysregulated and how to reduce trauma triggers in your life and deal with trauma. That's what it's all about. Right. You know, we're, none of us are perfect, Brooke, none of us. No, no. And um, one last thing to add to my own personal experience and trying to take it professionally now was as soon as my husband, you know, I even suspected that he had this diagnosis coming up. Um, I reached out to other therapists locally that specialized in autism or ADHD or neurodiversity and all of them advertised that, yeah, they worked with like children and families, but all of them responded and by all of them, I mean, maybe like a handful, five. Um, and I live in a fairly populated area of Rochester, um, New York, um, all responded back saying, oh, well, we've never heard of this dynamic of like a relational a spouse coming individually to help with their partner. Um, my own therapist was scratching their head of like, well, have you tried this center that specializes in children and adolescents for ABA therapy? And I just was getting very, very frustrated. Like, no, like none of this is appropriate or fitting again, the shame and stereotypes and stigmas. Um, but just, I was like, there has to be others out there. And of course, you know, with this podcast, I know there's people out there, but finding the professional resources are so limited. And um, fortunately, I've been able to access some yeah. since then, um, myself and my husband, but it just is baffling. Um, yeah. yeah, the lack well, of awareness. Yeah. And, and the thing is going back to um, autism was a diagnosis that children got. ADHD mm-hmm. was a diagnosis that children got. And, you know, I'm, I'm almost 60. So it wasn't even the, the diagnoses weren't even very popular when I was in school or growing up. Mm-hmm. But but the thing is, if you believe that autism or ADHD only occurs in children, and that's what you've learned in school, mm-hmm. When do you get 
that update <laughs> you know <laughs> when does that paradigm shift occur and mm-hmm. it doesn't you know it doesn't so when i talked to when when we were first looking for a couples therapist um, who understood neurodiversity when we figured out we were a neurodiverse couple and specifically autism in adults there were two um, that was it. That's all, well, actually three and the one never returned our calls, but one was Grace Myhill, who, mm-hmm. you know, is at AAME mm-hmm. and the other was Eva Mendez, who actually used to be at AAME and now is in her own private practice in the United States. Those were the only two I could find in 2017. Now you can go to my website at Neurodiverse Love. Dot com And I have everybody who's been on the podcast, uh, who's a therapist or a coach, and you can hear their episode and you can get their website link. But and, and what Grace is doing with AANE, the training that you said you're going through is so, so important, but we need more. Okay. So we both agree that we need a lot more <laughs> and, and we're doing our piece. But I know one of the things that a lot of folks are probably asking themselves is, you've been married how long, Brooke? For four years. We were together in total for seven years. Okay. So you're new to this, unlike me who found out in her 29th year (laughs) of marriage. So, you know, I know that your lens has been shifting in the way in which you look at yourself and your marriage and your family. So I'd love if you could share a little bit about how you're personally shifting the way you look at things and how this is helping with your personal healing, um, both individually and as a couple. That would be, Mm -hmm. I think, very helpful. Yeah. um, So I began my own therapy journey before even my own ADHD diagnosis, husband, any of that. In my graduate program, they really... Um, emphasize you need to do your own self as a therapist work, healing work, so that you can show up as the healthiest you can um, dealing with people and trauma every day. Um, So I did begin that in, you know, 2020 in the height of COVID, really got into it and did EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy, because I have a whole long list of traumas stemming from childhood and other things that I knew I needed to work through that were constantly getting activated and triggered in different ways. Um, so did I've done that for quite some time for the last two, three years, and it really helped me to at least be more regulated, grounded, because um, I had a lot of just negative beliefs about myself in the world. Um, so I think that was a big part of this too, um, at least detaching and depersonalizing everything um, to kind of at least get some, you know, more confidence and awareness of my needs and beliefs. Um, But then with this diagnosis, um, I still was feeling at that point, um, mid-March, April, just burnt out, angry, resentful. I had a lot of chronic pain, um, tension, anxiety. Um, I knew I just couldn't live with, regardless of whatever whatever the choice was to stay or go. Um, So... I knew that my own personal therapy was somewhat helpful, but I decided to space it out, which was a big piece, which sounds really backwards in the world we live in, which we harp self-care and therapy go hand in hand. Um, but realized that that place for me, I needed a, you know, maybe a check-in once a month um, because I was really just rehashing 
a lot of negatives um, and having those get validated hurt. So mm -hmm. I was like, I need to find other supports. Yeah. And I actually attended a virtual um, support group, um, Cassandra Syndrome support group that one of your guests, mm -hmm. um, a show back in April, Lisa, yep. um, who's fabulous, ran that. Um, and I met a handful of other women um, with a, the exact same lived experience that was a perfect group um, when my husband was working his second job and my daughter was asleep. I could attend that um, at nights weekly and was given a lot of tools and just awareness, won the community support, but it really challenged me to look internally and really ask myself what I needed and what I valued because I was so busy focusing my energy on the relationship, that kind of, that codependent cycle um, I think my whole life I've never stopped and really, really dug into like, what, no, what do I really need? And how do I, how do I get there? Um, and I am worthy of peace and, you know, a better life. And it's up to me, not, it's not on my husband. It's not up to my therapist. It's not up to anyone. Um, so just trying to reclaim myself in different ways of, you know, really journaling, advocating for, hey, tomorrow morning, I really need blank, 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 or having boundaries of, no, I, I really extend myself on the weekends. I do need rest. Um, mm -hmm. Help to really piece it back together where, you know, not just in my marriage, but in all parts of life. And I think that's part of my, the therapist in me was always wanting to help others and uh, make sure everyone else was um, happy and cared for and usually would, you know, go out of my way for that, but knew that that was draining me. Um, which then seeped into my marriage. I didn't have any emotional capacity to um, care for myself to show up as a mom and wife. Yeah. Okay. So you just said my story. Um, <laughs> that was my story. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's so wonderful about groups, because I'm sure as you shared that, that in Lisa's group, there were lots of other folks who felt the same way. And, you know, I just want to remind folks that I run two free support groups for the holistic or neurotypical partners. And so you can email me and I will provide you with the Zoom link. And it's it's not for the autistic partners, but there are groups uh, out there for autistic partners, too. But I think that that's so important to find a community, to find people that can hold your feelings and your experiences validate them and make you feel like you're not going crazy and again this goes for both partners neither one of you are going crazy and that there are ways in which you can begin to heal individually and as a couple with the right tools with the right therapist or coach and I I commend you for doing that at this young age because you are going to be a much better parent you're going to be a much better mother you're going to be um, a much better friend and therapist and partner wife um, it's just going to you know change your life forever I wish I had started on that journey earlier but you know we all learn when we learn and hopefully more and more people will have access to the supports and the strategies that they need so you have shared, Brooke, so much valuable information, so much about your lived experience that I know is going to res resonate with a lot of folks. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that you think would be helpful to others out there 
And then I'd love if you would share your contact information. Yeah. Um, I know easier said than done um, is I know the patients. Um, I know that the biggest factors for myself and my husband was we both needed to have awareness and motivation and the ability to shift our own internal, um, you know, views and understand our needs in neurology um, to do that. And we're still doing it. I mean, this was just a couple months ago that this is all blossomed into something really, really beautiful for us. And I think, you know, I'm getting to know my husband at such a deeper level about his, his awareness and his world um, and vice versa that, you know, it's opened a lot of new beginnings in a whole new, not just chapter, but a book for our marriage. And I know for some people sitting in that support group, they did see me and I really highly respect and appreciate those. They were all women um, and in heterosexual relationships and marriages, but holding space for me. But I know for some of them, they didn't, they definitely were not getting the drastic change that I was going through with my husband. I started session one Oh my goodness, I just complete trauma dump crying on screen with women from all over the country and just felt one really cared for and validated, but was just like, oh my goodness, like, is this really happening? And just, I showed up to group thinking that this was going to be a group that helped me more move towards divorce, but I am just so grateful and amazed at the change in um, accountability my husband did take um, and has been patient with me through this but um i know it can be hard to sometimes see and or hear even my story of like the positive more positive end so i want to you know hold space for i know everyone's story is going to be so different and really i know the hardest part is maybe coming to awareness of like what really is my partner's motivate motivation or capacity to make changes um and trying to let go of you know of course, unrealistic expectations, but sometimes the hardest part is letting go of the hope of what you thought your future was going to be, and there's a grief in that, but, you know, just being patient with yourself and your partner and doing what you needed to do, and also in general, um, wanted to make note of this and maybe should have again said this in the beginning, but um, I know that this is, you've mentioned it, um, a highly asked about topic or brought up in support groups. Um, but I do know that it can be kind of controversial in the neurodiverse um, spectrum and community. Um, it, it's highly debated from what I have, you know, read and heard, which is very, very little of, you know, in the research and literature right now. But um, I heard from Jody Carlton on two podcast episodes I could find. Um, you know, a lot of the um, autistic community, of course, doesn't love being compared to narcissism or, you know, being called a lot of derogatory names or says that you're lacking empathy. Um, I just want to hold space that my intention to come on here as the more holistic partner um, is to hopefully just, you know, bridge the gap so that there's less... Um, you know, unknown and again, judgment and shame in this topic where I don't see my husband as a narcissist. And um, initially hearing that from my therapist and going to the domestic violence services, I just knew that that wasn't him. And I wanted to get to the deeper answer of the, why are we so disconnected? Um, because once we could get there, it just made so much sense. And that's where we both could start to heal yeah. and make our lives better. 
Yeah. So I, I appreciate anyone listening and, you know, want to, um, you know, put it out there of like, I hope to not, you know, trigger anyone or make false assumptions. Just my hope was to, you know, bring awareness. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for saying that and for adding, you know, all those things that you think are really, really important to the patients, the awareness, the motivation, whether you and your partner have the capacity to make the changes. And I've said this many times on the podcast, letting go of the hope you had for your relationship before understanding that you're a neurodiverse couple, because there literally are some things that each of you are not going to be able to do or willing to do, and that's okay. And, you know, you're a perfect example of a person who has been trained as a marriage and family therapist. You had these, you know, thoughts in your head, your own therapists were talking about, you know, these things Then you were questioning. And this is the reality. It isn't about shaming or blaming. It's about the reality because as a world, as a, as a world, not just a nation, not just the United States, we haven't done a good job of educating folks about different, differently wired brains, neurology. And I know, I know it will get better in our lifetime, but it, it needs to get better a lot quicker because people are suffering. Um, and, you know, if you're the autistic partner in your relationship and this helps you bring up topics that you and your partner maybe have been avoiding. Um, I think that that's wonderful because understanding why Brooke thought her husband might be narcissistic and then understanding that he was doing the things he was doing to keep himself safe, to protect himself because he was on overload now she's able to process things through a whole different lens. So thank you again for being so vulnerable and sharing so much of your lived experience. I know it's going to be helpful to a lot of folks out there. So Brooke, this has been a phenomenal conversation and I'm sure there are going to be folks that are going to want to get in touch with you. And I know earlier you said you're going through the AANE training um, which is going to allow you to learn more even about um, neurodiversity and neurodiverse relationships. But if folks want to contact you, are you only licensed in the state of New York? Yes, currently only in New York. Um, okay. But fortunately, with coaching services, I am open to, um, you know, reaching couples nationwide and even internationally. Um for coaching services, which is different than therapy, but um, I will definitely give you my website. Um, I do have um, information on there that helps to decipher therapy versus coaching um, and always welcome to, you know, connect via email or even schedule a consultation phone call to see, you know, if we could be a good fit for couples therapy or coaching or even, you know, meeting individually with um, either partner um, to process through either trying to get a diagnosis or how to approach their spouse or loved one if they suspect neurodiversity, autism could be a factor. So I'm wide open to um, reaching, you know, any individual that is also kind of in the same boat. Wonderful. And what is your website address? 
Um, it is brookwardlmft.com. Um, it is just my full name and uh, LMFT, all one word. Okay. I will put that in the show notes and I'm sure there will be people that will reach out to you. Brooke, you know, I, I, I'm so glad that you reached out to me and that you were willing to share your story. And I really do hope that as you and your husband begin to understand more about each other and you're able to accept your differences and appreciate them and value them and even have, you know, fun laughing sometimes <laughs> about the differences that your, your marriage just gets better and better and better. And I really, really appreciate you sharing so vulnerably and um, openly with me. No, thank you so much, Mona. I, I really, really appreciate your um, time and having me on here. Um, to help, you know, hopefully help at least one person out there um, living in this maybe state of hurt or confusion. Um, and lastly, do want to thank my husband um, for, you know, talking and being open to me coming on here to be really vulnerable about our, our relationship and also just the vulnerability of his diagnoses um, in the recent past. So thank you to you both. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you to your husband too. I really appreciate it. I think the more that we're able to talk about this and the more vulnerable we're able to be and the more folks can relate to the lived experiences before and after, again, that's going to help create the paradigm shift that's critical. 